the short term is is easy, right? You know, the small stuff is easy. The big stuff is is harder. So the pitfalls come when one has a very set idea of, well, I want to retire at 50 and I want to spend nothing in the next 20 years. I want to save everything I can so that I can retire at 50. Where somebody wants to, the spouse may say, I want to live my life and work longer, but enjoy it along the way. And I've had a lot of couples come to me that were kind of on the bridge of separation or divorce. And, you know, they just weren't communicating. That was the bottom line. But they also just didn't have a shared vision. Financial decisions are endlessly complicated. There's a whole academic literature that tries to study them and improve them. And of course, there's a whole financial advisory industry that tries to help people improve their decisions as well. But there exists a divide between the two. I'm Hal Hirschfield, a professor of marketing, behavioral decision-making, and psychology at UCLA's Anderson School of Management. And on the behavioral divide, we study that gap and try to figure out what sort of insights can we learn to help people make better financial decisions. Whether it's arguments about the kids or arguments about in-laws, there's a lot of sources of conflict among spouses, but money might be one of the biggest. On today's episode, we talk about how financial decisions are made within couples and ideas around how we might improve them. In doing so, I'm going to talk to Scott Rick, a professor of marketing at the University of Michigan's Ross School of Business, as well as some financial advisors who actually deal with couples. Let's start by seeing what Professor Rick has learned in many years of research studying just this topic. Scott, thank you so much for um, for being here with me today. Listen, you know, in my my read on financial decision-making literature, so much of it seems to be focused on the individual consumer, which of course makes sense. You've got to, you know, you've got to start somewhere. But I, I so love what you and, and some of your collaborators and students have been doing by looking at couples. You, you had a recent article with Jenny Olson that spotlighted some of the insights we've learned over the last, I don't know if it was like about a decade or so, about financial decision-making within couples. In your mind, what, you know, what would you say are some of the most important insights that we've gleaned from, from this research? I think you're right that so much of financial life is made, you know, decisions in the context of other people. Often it's a romantic partner for many of us. And, you know, it's a very different decision process. It's, you know, we find, for example, that, you know, when someone's deciding on their own, how much they understand about finance matters a lot. It's kind of their so-called financial literacy. Spouse understands about finance. I, I get a sense from how they present themselves. So what we find is that in those conversations, it's really much more about who looks confident and like comfortable. And so that can lead to a very different outcome than if you just kind of let the most objectively skilled person, you know, take the wheel. I, so I think that's a, I was just gonna say, I think that's a, that's a huge insight, right? I, I would have to imagine that sort of thing applies to other domains as well, right? I imagine, you know, it, with parenting, I imagine, you know, well, my spouse looks like they know more what they're doing. I, I guess I'll just go with their decision, even if they <laughs> may yes. not, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and all those other considerations come into play, like who's more passionate about it? Do I need to manage the relationship and make sure everyone feels like they have a voice. And, you know, even if I know we're doing something suboptimal, I need to have a pleasant dinner and not sleep on the couch. And <laughs> we might have to maximizing our financial outcomes might be a very secondary matter. 
Yeah. So, okay. So that's, that's a really important insight, right? So the one thing here is uh, sort of objective financial literacy or knowledge may matter less than sort of the, the appearance that your spouse knows, knows what they're talking about. And then the decision-making falls. Then what, what are some of the other insights that, that you, that you all have, have uncovered in this space? Yeah, we've looked at how partners manage their accounts and how they share their money and what's your money and my money and our money. And that was a, a project where we kind of randomly assign newlyweds to keep a separate accounts or to merge their money into a joint account or just do whatever you want. And we'll follow you for a couple of years. And every few months we'll ask, you know, how's the marriage? Do you still like each other? That kind of thing. And, you know, what we find is that the people who are kind of forced to merge their money, they seem to get on the, the same page more quickly in terms of our money and a shared vision. And they seem to be happier with each other. They're seeing eye to eye more on money and they're, they're talking more. There's, there's greater kind of affection there. Yeah. I, I was a little surprised by that. I thought, yeah, you know, at first, at least you might learn some things that you don't want to learn or don't want to reveal. Like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I didn't realize that was your student debt number or just how much you spend on lattes or something like indeed, that. Indeed. Indeed. And, but no, we, we found that in general, that kind of forced intimacy was a pretty good thing. So, I mean, it's, it's tricky. I mean, if it's, if the relationship is not on particularly solid ground, if there's some risk of, you know, mistreatment of one by the other, then maybe you want to play it safe and keep things separate. That's mm -hmm. real. But, mm -hmm. you know, for a pretty wide range of couples where things are going okay, then it, it seems to be a, a good thing. There are some things where it's good to be open and, and, you know, sharing things. But I also think that some discretion and hiding of certain things can make some sense. Like, it, <laughs> you don't need to be 100% clear on where all the money is coming in from. And, right. and you know, if, if I have a latte habit at work, that helps me get through the day, you know, the, there's the latte myth that people think that that's a right. Big, maybe that should not be made super salient to the spouse because it could just lead to unnecessary arguments. It's not going to mm -hmm. solve any problems. So, you know, ultimately some blend of joint to create our money and to, you know, make earning differences, not salient is good, but also, if you can create some room for, you know, some, some discretion, privacy, others call it financial infidelity. That, that, that's a bit my, but <laughs> yeah, just not a version you know, of that. A version of that. It's like, it's not like every thought that pops into your head, you need to run and tell your spouse, mm -hmm. you know, if you wake up and say, oh, my, if you think, oh, my neighbor looks attractive today, you, you can keep that to yourself and you, you don't have to run and, and tell everyone that. I think the same kind of holds with money too. Speaking of some of the, the tensions that, that may arise there, you're so modest. You didn't mention one of the other big findings, which of yours that I absolutely love, where, you, you know, you've come up with this spendthrift tightwad dimension to, to classify how we uh, think about our, our spending, right? Where some yeah. people are spendthrifts, they spend like maybe more than they, they possibly think they should. And others, you know, are tightwads, right? Where they're not spending as much. And I know you found that spendthrifts and tightwads tend to attract. So first off, why do you think that is? And then secondly, you know, do, do you think this idea of joint accounts can actually 
you know, help some of the natural tensions that may arise there? Yeah. Well, I, I think so. The, the tightwads and the spendthrifts, they don't love that aspect of themselves. And, you know, when you don't love something about yourself, you, you can really find it unattractive in someone else. It can kind of repel you. And that's a real common pattern. I, I think the tightwad can be kind of wowed by the spendthrift spending, like, oh my gosh, I, I didn't know someone could spend like this. It's like magical. <laughs> and the spendthrift, I mean, they, they probably find the tightwad shock and, surprise like quite cute and charming and it, it, it works <laughs> at first but there's all kinds of fatal attractions out there this is a term in sociology and where the thing that draws you to the person is the same thing that kind of ruins the relationship you know i i you might kind of be attracted to someone because they're like a star in their career but mm. then discover that oh well they're actually a workaholic and it's kind of miserable living with them and so we think when things get more serious, you know, it's time to make decisions about houses and schools and where to move. These things don't seem so cute and endearing anymore. It's kind of, kind of rough. But yeah, so, so joint, I'm not sure that joint, just kind of encouraging those opposites to kind of adopt joint alone is going to fix it. it I, I think, you know, some outside guidance can be good. Because, you know, left to their own devices, those unstructured conversations can be quite tricky. So, you know, there, there, are, there are financial advisors. And I, I talked recently, there's a financial therapist in town that there seems to be growing interest in that. But yeah, so I think joint plus some guidance is probably the ticket for the real, real opposites. Uh, on that note, maybe this is difficult, but let's say one of those financial therapists or a financial advisor were to sit down with you. And they have questions, you know, they want to know some actionable insights for couples and grappling with their finances. Or, or let's just say some of those couples come to you. I'm sure, by the way, you, you must be getting this from some of your couple friends. Like, I, I can only imagine. <laughs> Thoughts are there. Yeah. So, you know, first of all, I would say it, it, it can be the tight wad scale. It can be something else. But, try, you know, get some baseline assessments of where we're at, kind of how we see things. And mm -hmm. see, you know, how much difference there is there. And that might not be obvious just from heated conversations. Yeah, you, you got to audit those feelings, audit the account structure. Like we discussed, are, are there things about the account structure that's drawing unnecessary attention to certain things? Yeah, and then, you know, just you, you need to look at kind of common sources of tension. Are there things that we can just clean up? Like, you know, just the gift giving process. Mm -hmm. There's like at least five or six times per year where you need to get your spouse something, and that can be a real source of tension. I then reached out to Austin-based financial advisor, Stuart Vick, who has spent almost 20 years working with couples in her practice. I was curious whether she saw the same sorts of issues that Professor Rick described and how she handled financial conflict among couples. I think the biggest pitfall really starts with coming from two different places, right? Okay. So you have two different individuals with different long-term goals. So the short term is is easy, right? You know, the small stuff is easy. Sure. Um, but the big stuff is is harder. So the pitfalls come when one has a very set idea of, well, I want to retire at 50 and I want to spend nothing in the next 20 years. I want to save everything I can so that I can retire at 50. Where somebody wants to, the spouse may say, I want to live my life and work longer, but enjoy it mm -hmm. along the way. So as you have mm -hmm. these 
diversions of big long-term goals, that's what's the hardest part is how do you bridge the gap? So trying to find mm-hmm. ways to do that and, and making sure that each individual spouse is heard and their point of view is respected or taken into account. I, I find this so interesting because, you know, some, some of the, the sort of growing research or the, you know, the growing literature on couples and financial decision-making really spotlights, you know, different spending patterns and different sort of approaches to money. But what you're talking about is much bigger. It's really about this sort of, you know, big picture goals and making sure that you're on the same page about how you want to use money to live your life, I guess. Yes. Yeah. And it's also um, even beyond that. It's not even about how, how to use the money. It's also how to invest the money. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of times I see discrepancies in how couples want to take risk in their portfolio, right? And, you know, you see True. some that really want to take a lot of risk because they want a lot of reward and some want a lot of safety. And, you know, a lot of times you see it and and I think the research and the stereotype is that women want more safety, so they want less right. stress. But I don't see that all the time. Sure. So it, it is figuring out how to bridge that gap of not just how to spend and save, but also how to invest. You know, it makes sense. And of course, you don't see it all the time, right? You know, it's like I love every time we have an impression or a tendency, we think that applies to everybody. But of course, it doesn't. And so I bet half of your job is figuring out you know, what sort of couple am I dealing with here, right? Right. And it's fun because every single couple is different. Not one client mm-hmm. has the same situation or is like the client I talked to, you know, yesterday or two months right. ago. Everybody is unique. And and that makes it fun because it's how do you bridge the emotions, the goals and and bring a couple together so that they're both successful and happy in the outcome. Well, so speaking of that, what sorts of strategies or interventions, if you will, have you introduced to help couples make, you know, more happy or more effective financial decisions together? And I think that revolves around communication. That's the very first mm-hmm. step. Because until each you know, it's funny because when we ask that first question, they're both surprised not only about how their partner feels about money, but also about they have very different goals. And until mm. it was actually spoken, I I think there's a lot of assumptions in marriage and assuming that you want the same things and you have the same goals in mind. And so really it gets back to communicating and really bringing up those very important topics and making sure that each spouse is heard so that they can participate. So like with anything in marriage, communication really makes a big difference. Sure. It doesn't seem to be any different, any different here. You know, you know, do you ever find resistance to introducing some of those topics? And like, how do you get over that resistance? Well, I haven't found a lot of resistance. I guess what I, I should say is what I find is Maybe one spouse saying, oh, really, you're, you're not, it's not that big of a deal. Are you not that worried? Mm-hmm. And, and really making sure that, that we flesh out what it is that is a big deal. Because it, it probably is. And one was just saying, oh, no, I'm sure it's not important, you know. Right. And saying, no, this really is important. So really, you know, making sure they're heard and working through it. it I think that's what you have to do. Advisor Liz Shaybaker who is based in Arizona and also primarily works with couples and groups, echoed some of these sentiments, but highlighted the need to focus on the complexity of risk preferences. 
I think first it's important to recognize that how we spend, save, and give says a lot about who we are and what we care about. And not all of the couples are coming from the same backgrounds. So, you know, depending on how they were raised, the money beliefs that they, you know, saw growing up, how their parents related to money, their culture, oftentimes you're trying to to bring two people together that are from very different backgrounds. So you have to try to build alignment and get them to come together to, to get to some shared vision or shared goals and objectives. And so some of the challenges around that, I think, are not always understanding that there's a freedom of choice, right? Everything is a trade-off. A lot of things have flexibility and can provide for peace of mind, but you need to understand right. what those trade-offs are. Another challenge is, and we see this a lot, especially in our older clients, that one partner just defaults usually the woman in that case defaulting and just letting her husband make the decisions on her behalf. But then oftentimes what happens is she hasn't been involved and then something happens. He you know, has a health event or passes away and all of a sudden we're trying to get them up to speed. So um, that is a big challenge. And then I think the other thing to think about with couples, especially if they are going to have a family or have a family, is, you know, how are they communicating those money beliefs to their children, right? Are they sending mixed messages? Are we all on the same page? Are we playing mom versus dad? All of those types of things. Mm. And then finally, I would say with a lot of men, <laughs> they tend to think that women are risk adverse. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's the wrong term for a lot of women. We're risk aware, so we're more mindful. I think we, once we understand the trade-offs and we are looking at the big picture, it's not that we are adverse to risk. We just want to understand, you know, how it all is going to come together and work. So you see a lot between couples on the risk awareness part. I find that to be fascinating, especially when you look at, you know, the, the literature suggests that, you know, women, in fact, may act in ways that might look risk averse, but I think you're bringing up a deep insight, which is that maybe what it looks like is not really necessarily what it is. And when you figure out what's happening under the hood, that can really change the way decisions are made. And so what I'm wondering is, so Liz, talk to me a little bit about how you kind of talk about and pull out those risk preferences in such complex situations. So it really just starts with defining the goals, bringing them together and we know that those goals are going to evolve over time, but at least it gives us a baseline and a framework to start with. And then we can revisit or, you know, course correct as needed. But it really helps us start to have the conversations around understanding the trade-offs. If we do X, we may not be able to do Y. It also bubbles up a shared list of values that we can then use, you know, going forward in conversations and decision-making. And I like to use them throughout the relationship with my clients just so mm -hmm. that they stay aware in their daily decisions and prioritize them and really honor them. And just, you know, not just when they're at my conference room table, but as they're out making these decisions, they really go back to this shared list of values. And then, you know, meriting the risk tolerances or the risk capacity, you know, one might be conservative, the other might be aggressive, but if you bring it back to the goals and objectives, it tends to help in that frame framework. And maybe we don't need to be as risky, right? We have, we have enough assets that we don't have to take on that extra risk. And what does that look like? Or the opposite, where we may have to take on more risk in order to meet our goals. And if we aren't comfortable with that risk, what do we need to do in order 
to change our goals and objectives in order to meet them. Well, and I've had a lot of couples come to me that were kind of on the bridge of separation or divorce. And, you know, they just weren't communicating. That was the bottom line. But they also just didn't have a shared vision or how to get there. And so by taking them through this process of defining those goals, you know, I might have one spouse looking, you know, three to five years out. I don't care about the next, you know, I just need to make sure this works for three to five years and I'll figure out the next five years later. But then mm -hmm. I might have one spouse that's like, but that's not okay with me. I need to know that I'm going to be secure and, you know, we're robbing Peter to pay Paul just to get through the three to five years. So how do, how do we not live like this? And so I have had several clients come in in a situation like that and I defining them they're still together <laughs> so by defining <laughs> them right. and kind of knowing what we're we're working for and talking about the fears and all of the things that go along with it I think really helps and I have one one client that well actually I have multiple clients that say this but they they want bracelets what would Liz do so a bracelet WWLD <laughs> so that they can be reminded throughout life that <laughs> Well, I'm I'm so, conversations. I'm so glad I, I was worried you're going to say, and then they didn't get divorced until a couple more years later. I, I helped no, them. Hold on. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. This is great. Liz, thank you so much for sharing your insights and some of your um, stories from your practice with me. I really appreciate you spending the time today. You're welcome. Okay. So if I can put these insights together, it seems like there are three key ones. First, make it transparent. The couples who do the best with their money are the ones who see what each other are doing. Joint accounts can help there. Second, figure out where you want to go. Knowing what your goals are and actually having a conversation about them among spouses is the exact type of thing that can help ease those financial decisions. And finally, figure out where you came from. Everybody has different past experiences with money. Everybody has different past experiences with financial decisions. And only once those are aired out and put on the table can couples come together to make better decisions moving forward. Thanks so much for listening today. I'd of course love to hear more from you on this topic. You can find my email address in the show notes. So shoot me a note and let me know what you found works for making better financial decisions among couples. Thanks again for listening today. You've been listening to The Behavioral Divide, brought to you by Avantis Investors. This material has been prepared for educational purposes only and is not intended as a personalized recommendation or fiduciary advice. It is not intended to provide and should not be relied upon for investment, accounting, legal, or tax advice.